Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guest today is Dr. Aaron Carter. Aaron is an associate professor and OA Vogel Endowed Chair in Wheat Breeding and Genetics in the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences at Washington State University. His research is directed toward breeding improved winter wheat varieties for cropping systems in Washington State that incorporate diverse rotations and environments. The program goal is to release high-yielding, disease-resistant varieties with good end-use quality that will maintain profitability and reduce the risk to growers. Varieties are developed using a combination of traditional plant breeding methods, molecular marker technology, biotechnology, and high-throughput phenotyping. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Drew. So, Aaron, I was recently at um, an annual meeting of the Western Society of Wheat Science, and there were several papers on this new um, coaxium wheat production system, and that got me thinking that maybe we should talk a little bit about the history of breeding for herbicide resistance in wheat, and then talk about the coaxium wheat breeding technology. So could you give us a little history of breeding herbicide-resistant wheat varieties here in Washington? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best, right? <laughs> I've, I've got a 10-year 10 10-year ten tenure here, but, um, you know, it kind of, I think all started back in the late 1990s. Um, we kind of had... Uh, the Clearfield wheat technology was coming out, so that's resistance to the Beyond herbicide. And then there was also Roundup Ready wheat that was being tested as well. Um, so I'll start with just Roundup Ready because that's a little more simplistic and short. Um, you know, as far as I know, uh, in like I said, in the late 1990s, uh, Monsanto released varieties to different breeding programs to begin introducing that Roundup resistant trait into their varieties across the nation. Um, the breeding went on for about five, six years. Different programs had varieties that they were um, prepared to release. But at that time, Monsanto decided that it was, you know, better to pull that technology off the, off the market and not commercialize it. Um, and so although varieties were ready to be released, um, there are no commercially released Roundup resistant wheat varieties. Um, all of the material was either destroyed or, or put in storage um, back at um, different facilities. So, you know, that was kind of a open and closed story. We started, but it never got commercialized. You know, and I get that question a lot about Roundup resistant weed and is it out there? And, you know, so this can clear everything up. There is no Roundup ready wheat commercialized and available for production. Um, and so then if we switch, like I say, the Clearfield wheat technology was coming along about the same time. So when I was doing my master's degree at the University of Idaho with Bob Zemetra, that was actually my master's degree project. Okay. So I would have been back in, you know, 2002, 2003 was actually to do the field testing and make sure the varieties that were developed could um, withstand the herbicide application and not have a severe injury with that. Uh, we started out with one gene resistance again back in the early 2000s 
We had some varieties that were were released. Um, I think the biggest one in the Northwest was ORCF 102. Uh, we saw a lot of acres of that um, come into production systems. And then again, just about the time I started here at Washington State University, so 2008, 2009 timeframe is when the two gene uh, resistant material um, started coming along in breeding programs and being commercialized. So kind of in that late 2000 and, you know, getting into the 2010s and onward, we've seen an increase in the two gene varieties as the one gene varieties have gone away. Okay. Is there anything special, unique about bringing herbicide resistance traits into wheat or is it just like any other trait that you... Uh, tried to bring into the into your program. Yeah, it's it's very similar to any other trait. You know, we start with a resistant variety that's usually given to us by the company. So, like in Clearfield Technology, BASF has an approved line that is the donor for the traits. Um, and then after that, it's it's breeding. If anything, it's actually a little easier because you spray them. If they die, you don't want them, and if they live, you keep them, and that's what you okay. take the field testing. So. You know, it's a little different because like in disease resistance, you know, there's these intermediate reactions or you don't really know if you got the disease or not. And it's a lot of field testing. Herbicide resistance is pretty straightforward. Even a weed scientist can do it a little bit. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so tell us about a little bit about your current projects involving herbicide resistant wheat, both the Clearfield wheat and, and, and whether you're doing anything with this new coaxium wheat. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, WSU has released um, some two gene uh, resistant lines for Clearfield. Um, so most people would be familiar with Curiosity and Mila um, that are LTAN types that have the two gene resistance to Clearfield. Um, those have been out again since the early 2010s. Um, and then recently released was Resilience. Um, and that's targeted more for the high rainfall and a Madsen type background. Um, so we have some varieties that, uh, that kind of fit all the production zones. And then we just um, uh, submitted for approval to our variety release committee um, a two gene line that will be called Stingray CL Plus. And that's really more targeted for the, the southern um, region of the state and then also northern Oregon. Um, and then also does well in other production zones, but you know, that's kind of the focus. So, you know, we've kind of got a good pipeline going along now for both high and low rainfall varieties of, of two gene clear filled varieties. Um, you know, so we have seen the acres of those decrease a little bit, just as we've got more weeds that are resistant to beyond. Um, but we actually will still see a yield advantage because there is so much of that chemical in the soil residual you'll still see a little advantage just growing the resistant line, okay. even though you're not spraying it, just because we've used that chemistry a lot. It's in a lot of our soils. Yeah, so as we talk uh, about the herbicide-resistant varieties and in, in production systems, such as Clearfield, I guess that's one of the concerns we scientists have had, is that it's really good technology, but if you use it too much, you develop herbicide resistance. Uh, in the case of Imazimox, we've seen buildup of it, particularly in our drier portions of the of the state where the breakdown isn't as quick. And so I think we need to be careful. And I think we talk about it. I think you talk about don't don't overuse this technology or we won't we won't have it for long. And and I think because we're starting to see the breakdown 
to the clear field. There's a lot of interest in this new technology. And uh, one of my fears is that we'll start using it just like we used Clearfield and it won't last real long. But, but um, it has stimulated a lot of interest. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, where you're at with that particular herbicide resistant trait? Right. So, yeah, this was a this was a technology that was developed by Colorado State University uh, to a group one herbicide. Um, and I believe Alba is the company that it will be marketing the herbicide, which is called Aggressor. Um, and so, yeah, we're looking at it's co- it's called the coaxium, you know, wheat system, very similar to like the Clearfield wheat system. Um, so, uh, you know, I kind of use those interchangeably. Um, but yeah, so we've we've signed the agreement with Colorado State University to begin introducing the trait into our germplasm. Um, now, again, they give us the approved donor, which is a Colorado State hard red winter line. Um, and I my job is to convert it into a Pacific Northwest soft white <laughs> winter line. Um, you know, so there's definitely some breeding and selection that we have to do. Um, you know, bringing it into the hard red material is a little bit easier because it's the same market class. Converting it to the soft white is a little more difficult. Um, but basically, all the programs, um, you know, that have signed the the agreement basically got the germplasm about the same time. So we're all kind of about in the same same place as far as breeding goes. Um, but yeah, so the first part is just getting the trait introgressed and resistant lines. Most of that's typically done in the greenhouse. And then we shift it out to the field and start doing the field testing to make sure we're carrying along all the other traits we need for yield potential, disease resistance, end use quality, um, and so on. Um, You know, and, you know, I've done the math and I've thought as fast as I could go and, you know, starting increases with, uh, you know, foundation seed services as fast as I can. You know, probably the quickest we could get something out would be four to five years in a soft white background um, that would actually be commercially available. Not just because we have the breeding time associated with that, but we also have the uh, seed increase side with Crop Improvement Association. Um, You know, so again, you know, we're looking at um, a few years anyway before we get something out of our breeding program. So right now what's commercially available um, are two lines from Colorado State University. I believe Lima Grain has licensed one of those. Um, It's called LCS Fusion. It's a hard red line, basically a a Colorado State um, hard red line uh, that is being marketed in the Pacific Northwest. And you know, I know there was a demand for this technology, so a lot of growers did put that variety in, maybe around about 50,000 acres, mainly in the southern part of the state. Okay, and what's your uh, expectation for how that variety will perform in this part of the country? Yeah, you know, we've looked at Colorado State material before. Um, it's typically on the earlier side, so it's going to mature very early. So again, in our environments, I'm not sure that it can capture the full yield potential that we might have to offer just because it matures earlier and is probably going to miss on some of that um, moisture that's in the ground that other varieties capture. So probably a lower yield potential. Um, And then also it's pretty susceptible to our races of stripe rust. You know, Colorado State doesn't have that complexity of race structure that we do. 
Um, so, you know, it's something that the growers need to be aware of. You know, it's kind of that trade off like we talk a lot about different traits and what you care about in a variety. Um, so, you know, there's definitely growers who need that technology. They've got weed problems. They're resistant to beyond. They need a different chemistry. Um, so this this helps with the, you know, the weed side of it. As far as a variety goes, yeah, they're going to be probably putting some fungicide applications on it and not expecting a high yield. But that's that's the trade-off for the weed control. Okay. So they have they need to realize that it's probably going to yield less and then make that decision whether that's price is worth paying to get the weed control they want. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, you know, at least until we get the breeding part of it through, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get that yield potential up there. Okay. So you're talking four or five years. If my math is correct, that's 2023, 2024. Yeah. For a soft, will you get a hard red out maybe a year earlier or you about know, the same time? Maybe, but it's probably the same timeline. Again, just because of that germplasm we start with, we have to, again, bring along the disease resistance that we need, you know, make sure we're hitting protein and end use quality specifications. So, you know, um, it's, it's probably about the same time going in both of them. You know, I, I'm putting a little more of my effort in the soft white, mainly just because that's our, our bread and butter, right? We've got right. a lot more acres of soft white. So I've kind of divided my attention more to soft white than hard red. But again, they're probably both about on the same track. Okay. Well, I think this is a very interesting technology like the Clearfield. I'm a little concerned if, if growers overuse it, uh, the ACCase inhibitors, we've developed resistance to those even more quickly than we have the ALS inhibitors like uh, Imazimox or beyond. And so I am just hope our growers will uh, use it wisely, don't overuse it, maybe rotate it with Clearfield technology and different crop rotations and try to hold on to it as long as possible. Right. Yeah. And that's something we've been trying to, you know, you've got the the breeding side of it and the development side, but I've always tried to stay in close connection with you, with Dr. Burke, you know, with our agronomist team for that same reason. You know, I want to develop the varieties that our growers need, but at the same time, use them in a system that's going to be the most sustainable. Um, because yeah, if we, if we don't use them in a sustainable way that's really thought out, um, and growers are just using them back to back to back in seasons because of the easiness of it, yeah, it's, it's going to be a technology that potentially doesn't live as long as it could. Okay. You know, and so extending that with good stewardship is, is ideal. So when do you suppose growers might see some of these lines and some of the variety testing fields around? Uh, when should they start looking for that, I guess? Yeah, you know, it would probably still be, at least from my program, about two years. Two years, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so maybe... Maybe in 2020, but probably more likely in, in, you know, the summer of 2021, you'd probably see a couple varieties in there. And again, you know, I'm hypothesizing that Oregon State University, Lima Grain, some of the other programs are about the same, same spot we are. Okay. Well, our listeners should uh, be patient, I think. Uh, keep their eyes open for what's coming out of your program and be careful using this new promising technology. Thanks, Aaron. All right. Thank you, Drew. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter 
at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time.